But at the end of the day, most of the research suggests you'll, you'll design much more sustainable products where you have more diverse perspectives at the table. Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Poyer from OpenView's expansion team, where I help software companies accelerate their revenue growth so they can become market leaders. This season on Build, we're dedicating every episode to a different SaaS benchmark. Think growth rates, unit economics, the rule of 40, and so on. Each week on Build, I'll speak with VCs to find out what they're looking for in a new investment, as well as operators to get the inside track on how to actually hit those lofty benchmarks. Today's episode is all about diversity and inclusion, how the moving forward effort is helping founders connect with inclusive VCs, and how companies can eliminate hidden biases in the hiring process. I'm joined by Ginny Foz, co-founder of Moving Forward, and Kate Glazebrook, co-founder and CEO of Applied. Ginny, thank you for joining the OpenView Built podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And before we get started, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you get started in the tech world? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a humanities major. I studied history and literature undergrad. And surprisingly, my senior year, I was taking an American novels class, and we were reading My Antonia by Willa Cather. And it's a book where kind of the Antonia, the main character, has to make a, a critical decision of whether she's going to spend her life basically like marrying this professor and who's a Latin professor and spending her days steeped in kind of academia in the old world, or whether she's going to go out onto the Western frontier and become a, a farmhand, essentially, and like kind of try something new and, and take a risk. And there was this like really compelling lecture that the professor gave around this, and is she going to choose the old world or the new world? And the old world is safe, but the new world is exciting. And and strangely, it was that lecture that made me think, huh, I like, want to be part of technology. Like I want to be a new world person, even though I don't know what that looks like necessarily move out Um, west join the gold rush yeah kind of it was so funny because I had not I had not been like building my entire kind of vision for my career around that at all but there was this moment and when it just felt like the technology industry felt like the most kind of exciting future building place I could put myself at that moment and so then I moved to San Francisco and started working at a, a tech startup that was health tech focused. And so walk me through what happened after that. So you were a humanities major, moved into, started a marketing role, if I'm not yeah. uh, mistaken, and then went back to dev boot camp and kind of restarted your career as a software engineer. What led you to make that second jump, like not just into the new world, but from a role in a tech company to being a, a developer? Yeah, so I was working in this small-ish startup. We were about 20 when I joined, about 50 when I left. And sometimes it would feel as if I was working in a company where I didn't speak the language almost, just because so much of what it meant to be forward-thinking about new features for our product was to think about what it would entail to build that, because you obviously have to weigh the costs when you're thinking about your strategy and the costs of time and resources and whatever else. And I just felt like I didn't have a vocabulary to think through that kind of systematically. And a lot of it was because I'd never taken a computer science class. Like, I I knew so little about what it meant to build a product from the ground up. And I spent a few months being frustrated. 
And then I realized this was a very solvable problem. And I was lucky that I lived in a place where you could go to some programs that were like a real fast track to, to learning about software. So I enrolled in Dev Bootcamp. It's a five-month program. The first two months are part-time, then there are three months of very like full-time intensive. You basically live at this school um, learning to code. And so I completed that last year, and right now I work as a software engineer at Uber, and I work on the Uber Eats team, so delivery, food delivery stuff. And then it sounds like you never like to be bored. <laughs> so also in your spare time or in addition to your day job, you started the hashtag moving forward movement really mm-hmm. with several others. Uh, could you talk about how that got started and, and the journey of the organization from then to now? Yeah, so moving forward started out really as just kind of an interesting conversation that happened at a dinner for female founders in fall of 2017 like October of last year. And I wasn't at the dinner, um, but two of our founders were. Andy Corvos and Cheryl Husoy were both there. They met for the first time at the dinner. And there was a conversation around if something were to happen that felt like harassment, what would we as entrepreneurs be able to do about it? Or And people were like, okay, I would take a screenshot on my phone, but then what would I do with the screenshot? Like, who would I send it to? Or like would I have to go to the press or are there legal protections? It turns out, you know, it's required for organizations to have legal documents around what happens if you're working in an organization and you're harassed with that organization, right? So for employees, there are these legal protections of like, there needs to be a policy. But for the relationship between an entrepreneur and a VC, there isn't that same requirement. And so there's this question of if something happens, like what options do I even have? And people were kind of talking about this and brainstorming. And then there was a thought of, well, what if we had a collection of policies that we know that venture capitalists have where they particularly specify this is for external relationships. This is for our relationships with our entrepreneurs to make sure our entrepreneurs are protected. And so uh, that just kind of got the ideas swirling. And then there was like, oh, well, maybe we should reach out to folks who work in VC and see how many of these resources exist? Like, are there policies already? Maybe we just don't know about them. And in in doing some of that outreach with kind of companies that people had pitched to or friends they had who worked in the industry or whatever, there were some groups that did have policies, but a lot of them didn't. And another big piece of this that hadn't been as thoroughly kind of discussed or explored by VCs was this reporting line. Like, if something were to happen, is there a designated person within the firm who you should reach out to? And so the thought was, okay, what if every firm had that and we publish this list so that, you know, entrepreneurs know when they're going to pitch at different VCs, oh, there might be someone I could talk to if something were to happen. And so that's kind of where the movement started. And over time, like over a series of months, we kind of reached out to different firms and got people excited about the idea. And then we had a launch day on March 8th which is International Women's Day, which is like a big, you know, a a day when we figured there would be a lot of interest in covering initiatives like this, but also just a great kind of deadline for us to really hustle and get firms (laughs) on board and and have a moment when this became a a public project. Great. Yeah, you always need some urgency. And I think even, you know, thinking a a little bit before that conversation fall of last year, like one of the biggest things that made venture capital stand out as a kind of a target in this area was the Ellen Powell case. Mm-hmm. While she ultimately lost the case, it really showed people how big of an issue this was, especially in the, and how little accountability there was on the venture capital side. Could you talk about some of the stories and examples that made moving forward so urgent? Yeah. 
a lot of what our founding team felt was that like we had had these experiences ourselves and then others at this dinner where kind of this idea came about also had had these experiences. So it wasn't necessarily looking at the media and being like, oh, this is a problem, but, you know, feeling the problem amongst our team and feeling like there weren't a ton of options or known resources to for how to operate if you're in a, a situation that involves harassment or discrimination. Mm-hmm. And so it was really just kind of, I mean, Cheryl's been pretty public in particular about her experiences with harassment. And uh, so there is a lot of processing there because you can't be public about this necessarily in the moment when it's happening. There are different pressures from your company, your team, and feeling like, you know, your entire career is, is staked on this relationship. And so trying to designate, like, what do those resources look like and how do we create a situation where no matter what stage your company is, you feel comfortable voicing issues and, and addressing them immediately and proactively. And so that was very top of mind for us. It is really difficult from a female founder perspective because you obviously don't want to jeopardize this relationship and potential investment that's so important to the company. So, yeah, there are very few options. What also happened around the same time is a Founders for Change launched and kind of looking at similar issues but from the different side of things. Yeah. And they're sort of looking at startup founders trying to generate more of a community of founders that only take money from firms that they feel are truly invested in diverse teams. Yeah, yeah. And I'm curious about, you know, why you guys chose to tackle this from the VC angle instead of from the founder angle and what the impact has been since you launched. Yeah, absolutely. We felt it was important to establish a baseline for what these resources should look like. And so moving forward says in order to to join our group of participating firms, you need to have a policy in place and the policy has to specifically address external parties. It can't just be internal inside the VC firm how these situations will be handled. And then we say that you also need to have established lines of reporting, contacts who individuals could reach out to, both for harassment-related experiences and discrimination-related experiences. Like, those two experiences have a lot in common and that they need to be addressed and they need to be reported, but there are obviously kind of different sensitivities and concerns in those two experiences. So we felt it was important to make sure that both of those could be addressed by either the same reporting contact or different ones. And so... Doing that and establishing that baseline felt like, okay, so now entrepreneurs have at least a starting point to start to have this conversation with VCs. VCs feel like they know what the most kind of immediate deliverables are, what founders will be looking for, what they'd like to see. And then there was this idea of kind of open source and creating a directory of these resources so that firms could learn from each other. Because there are conversations internally about these topics. We know those are happening, but it's so hard to have an eye on what others are doing because there isn't really a home for these materials. And so it was important to us to pool and centralize all of the amazing work that's being done and create a gallery of sorts so that different firms could look at each other's work, be inspired by each other's work, think about how they might want to do things the same or different. And then founders as well, when they're thinking about who to pitch, can look at, at people's policies and use that as, as part of their calculus. And really Founders for Change is about that, right? It's about founders who want to prioritize those sort of initiatives and in their raising. And so this is a resource for those founders. So this podcast season is inspired by our benchmarking survey. And the survey found that actually 
only 4% of companies had parity between men and women on their boards, and only 12% have full parity between men and women in their leadership ranks, so those director-level employees and above. More than 70% of companies have no female board members, and OpenView at least decided to highlight the gender gap because we feel like if you don't acknowledge it and collect data, then you can't really take action on it, and there's no point of reference to see if you've moved the needle on changes. But what are some of the ways that other VC firms and startup founders can move forward and close the gender gap? Yeah, totally. So there are a few pieces to this. The first we feel is having this baseline of having a policy, having reporting contacts, and having those public so that others can look at them. Once those are established, there's also a quality question of how do we make these How do we make our policy really robust? How do we make our reporting contacts really accessible to those who need them and and well-trained in in handling these incidents? So for the side of the reporting contacts, one kind of thing that firms can choose to do is to have, first of all, multiple different options for reporting incidents because people in different experiences will have different comfort levels with how they want to report. But In particular, we think it's important to have a third-party reporting contact, somebody outside of the firm. So there's kind of that extra distance and and safety and feeling like maybe what you bring forth will not affect your own kind of relationship with with the firm in general. So those third-party reporting lines we feel are really important. Um, As far as the kind of diversity and metric side... Definitely on board with the first step is having transparency around what the metrics look like. And I appreciate the study you quoted and and just the courage, really, to put those numbers out there because they're not always numbers that firms are proud of. But being really clear about where things are is an important first step. And then I, I think beyond that, setting goals around improving those metrics, right? Businesses set goals all the time to move different metrics that are of value, and diversity metrics shouldn't be left behind there, like... We really need people setting goals around this, incentivizing both individuals and teams to really rally behind these goals. And that's diversification of both leadership inside the firm, as well as the the group of entrepreneurs that, that VCs choose to fund. Totally. And we always talk to our companies about not just looking at vanity metrics, metrics that look good and feel good. It's important to look at metrics that really aren't actually working very well for them and building plans to improve in those areas. Moving forward, one of the things you mentioned was that it's a gallery of sorts to inspire other VCs, hopefully you know, get bigger and better commitments from folks and have people learn from each other. What are some commitments you've seen VCs make around promoting diversity and inclusion within their firms and startup community? We've seen really amazing work. Like It's been so cool to, first of all, a number of the firms when they first heard about moving forward didn't have an external policy didn't have reporting lines or didn't know what a reporting line was. So the fact that we started this project just a matter of months ago and launched with 57 firms participating, and now we're at over 100, and a number of these firms didn't have these materials before, that already feels like incredible work. And we have firms reaching out to us all the time with, oh, we're thinking of adjusting our policy this way or that way, what are your reactions? So it feels like we really have been able to start a conversation that's ongoing and and we're feeling the motivation from the firms we're working with and that's really exciting and cool. Certain firms have have done things that we didn't expect that we're really excited by. I guess one example that's top of mind is two firms we work with, Greylock and Homebrew, have created policy templates that they give to all of their portfolio companies to say this is the kind of policy that would be valuable to institute in your business. 
And again, these templates are starting points, but it's really amazing to see that kind of dynamic being led by the VC firm and, and to have a firm that's done so much research around this to have opinions about what good policies look like for their portfolio companies. That's really exciting to us. And we continue to kind of be in conversation with firms. And I think a lot of our focus in the next few months is how do we stimulate that conversation, share it, and, and get firms feeling like they can talk to each other about these issues. That's great. And what's next for moving forward? What will the movement look like, you know, say a year from now, in your opinion? Yeah, it. I mean, it's been growing so fast. And that's one of the most thrilling things about working on this project is how many firms continue to sign on every week. So growing the membership of moving forward is really important to us. And yeah, we're at over 100 firms now. And we hope to, you know, continue having more and more folks come on board. And then I, I think the other big focus for us is programming and education within the community we're building. Like, it's it's great that everybody is so rallied and jazzed to have taken the first step. And, and what we've felt is the hunger from the firms we work with, people saying, what can we do next? Or how do we make this better? And we're partnering with a few different organizations to help with that. Um, Project Include in particular really specializes in helping different organizations level up their materials around diversity and inclusion. And so those are partnerships we're excited about. But we are planning a number of things for our participating firms that will help keep that conversation going and, and keep people feeling inspired to work on these issues. Well, it's great work. Thanks so much for joining us, Jenny. Yeah, thank you. Jenny shared great insight into the moving forward effort and how VC firms are taking steps to become more founder-friendly with inclusive policies. Now we'll hear from Kate Glazebrook, co-founder and CEO of Applied, about founding a startup from a non-traditional background and working to combat hidden bias in the hiring process. Kate, thank you for joining the OpenView Build podcast. Thanks for having me. Today we want to talk about how tech companies can hire the best teams and take the bias out of hiring. Before we jump in, could you tell us about Applied and your role there? Sure. So I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of Applied, which is a technology platform that uses behavioral science and data science to remove bias from hiring decisions. So basically, it's a hiring platform built by behavioral scientists to help you find the best person for the job, irrespective of their background. And what was your first job? And did that have an impact on where you are today? My first job, actually, I was an economist in the Australian government, bizarrely working on pension policy, which I think is a cruel way to start your career working on people's retirement plans. But actually, I think it does have some kind of read across to what we do here. Basically, my job in government was to look at welfare policy and ways of using it to help make sure that we promoted social mobility. And that's exactly what we're trying to do as part of Applied, use hiring tools to make sure that the best person gets the job and we don't systematically overlook huge swathes of the population just because they don't look the part. Yeah, it's, it's a really fantastic mission. And, you know, we hear all the time that companies should focus on hiring to create diverse teams. Could you talk about, I'll talk a little bit about why are diverse teams so important in an organization? Yeah, we get asked this a lot. I mean, I think... I, I guess I would turn the question on its head sometimes and say, can someone give me a good reason why you wouldn't want diversity in your team? And that's not just socio-demographic diversity, but also socio-cognitive. So people coming at problems from different angles. But I think, you know, sticking to the research, the areas in which most of the research suggests is that diverse teams tend to outperform homogenous teams, particularly where they're working on projects which require creativity, innovation, solving complex problems where not all of the information about the problem is known. And I guess in the sort of 
model of the fourth industrial revolution, all of our jobs are going to be taken over by robots and really only the things that we're going to be left to do are the kinds of things that have these characteristics. So I guess, you know, research suggests that actually diverse teams tend to do better because they approach problems from different perspectives. In fact, some research suggests that one of the reasons why diverse teams perform better is that people actually end up working a little bit harder. They know going into a process that people are going to be coming at the problem from different angles and that they're going to need to kind of present their perspective as persuasively as possible. You know, some researchers have even found that diverse juries actually remember the case facts a little bit more clearly than homogenous juries do in with this sort of view that they're working a little bit harder than other teams would. But I guess the other reason why having diverse teams is so important, and, and maybe this is most relevant for the kinds of people who listen to this podcast, is that technology built by a diverse group of people is far more likely to serve effectively that diverse group of people. And long gone are the days when we have some apps designed for some people and some apps designed for others. Most technologies want to have the widest application possible. And by bringing in the widest group of people in building that technology, it's much more likely that you'll have that kind of wide outreach. So there's a, there's a bunch of business reasons why that should be the case, a bunch of moral reasons why that's the case. But at the end of the day, most of the research suggests you'll, you'll design much more sustainable products where you have more diverse perspectives at the table. Yeah, I think that point is so interesting, that this idea that diverse teams work harder. And you know maybe that's because that the individuals just can't rely on everyone and their team having the same beliefs or assumptions that, that they do. You know, I'm curious about why, why do you think that is? You know, I think it, it's got a couple of different places. I think partly it's, you know, comfort levels. You know, if we know that we're going into a conversation with a bunch of people where we think we pretty much know what they think about most topics, then you can kind of quite quickly dodge things that you don't want to talk about and kind of concentrate on the areas of mutual interest. Whereas actually a lot of what teams are hoping to do in this sort of modern economy is they're trying to solve really hard problems, problems where actually making everyone making one assumption right at the get-go could lead you down a path that's wildly wrong for the application you're looking for. I mean, this literature became really big after the global financial crisis when everyone was sort of scratching their heads saying, how is it possible that we had an entire financial market reading risk in exactly the same way? And a large part of that was because everyone was reading the same kinds of things, everyone kind of had the same kinds of approaches in, in, in how they approach the problems. But more importantly, they weren't testing their assumptions. And one of the easiest ways to make sure you test your assumptions is to have somebody who vehemently represents a slightly different perspective. So you can sometimes force it and teams often talk about red teaming or having somebody who deliberately represents an alternative viewpoint. But another way of avoiding having to force that is just have a group of people with different sets of, of backgrounds presenting different perspectives at the table. Well, you've sold me. <laughs> I'm sure you've sold a bunch of others as well. But then one piece of pushback you might get is organizations that say, oh, you know, I totally believe this, but it's really difficult for me to hire diverse individuals or diverse teams. You know, why do people tend to think that? Is it really that difficult? I think there are some challenges, but I think by and large, actually, it's just that most of us are used to doing things the way that we always have and changing from our status quo of the way we've always done things always feels really difficult. I think the, the reason why most people say that it's hard, I mean, there's 
there are both sourcing and attraction issues. So people will say, I can't even get a diverse group of people to come and apply to my jobs. And there's a whole, whole host of problems around that. And then there's a whole host of problems around now that I've even got diverse people applying for my jobs, I'm not finding any of them getting them. And we as a platform are really focused on ways of helping teams to overcome both of those problems, particularly around the selection stage of the process. So making sure that even if you have a diverse group of people, that you're not systematically overlooking them just because the process that you're using inadvertently biases against them. I think in the sourcing and attraction side, a couple of the challenges come from the fact that most of us inherently feel comfortable hiring people who look and feel a bit like us, right? So that means that also in, in times where we're heavily reliant on our own networks to do our hiring, and obviously loads of companies have made a lot in the past out of referral schemes, you know, they even heavily incentivize finding people from your own network because typically in the past they've found that those people are more likely to accept and, and sort of filter into the team at higher rates than, than people who didn't have a referral. But the problem with that is, of course, it's recursive. My network is, by definition, less narrow, sorry, more narrow than, than the wider network that's out there. So if I'm only hiring from people I already know or people I've heard of, then there's definitely people I'm overlooking just by virtue of the people I've come across in the past. So I guess some of the challenge around diversity is, is trying to get people to understand that having a bit more transparency and opening up their hiring processes to more people and not only tapping people on the shoulder is is one good way of getting out of that recursion problem. But then there's a whole host of other challenges associated with making sure that when people have in fact applied, you know, that you've managed to get the word out, you've managed to tap into networks you otherwise wouldn't have had, that when those people come in the door that you're not you know, choosing just the person who most represents that archetype in your mind. So we know that a lot of organizations have this trouble and it's not just around hiring women into technology roles, though that's an obvious area. But, you know, we know that the same thing holds for men when they go into roles that are about caring for young people. There are as many stereotypes that work against men in those settings as there are stereotypes against women in technology roles. So one of the things that the technology that we've built is about is, is saying, let's remove any of the things that we think might distract the way that you understand talent, like people's names or where they went to school 15 years ago, which we know is not really much of a predictor of their performance on the job, but we know is the sort of thing that the brain pays a bit too much attention to in a traditional hiring process. So once we've removed those distractions, we can really concentrate on the skills that this person can bring to the role. And that's really where you start to discover that diversity wins out while at the same time making sure that you're actually finding the person who's most skilled for the role at hand. You know, I, th I think those are awesome points. And you did actually a TEDx talk a few years ago where you discussed the process your own team went through to remove bias on resumes and in hiring can you take us through what you did and what results did you find? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we came from an interesting background. We're a technology product that spun out of another organization called the Behavioral Insights Team, or that's sometimes referred to as the Nudge Unit. So you can imagine a bunch of sort of geeky behavioral scientists and data scientists sitting around saying, how do we do better hiring for ourselves? We had hundreds of applicants for every role that we put out there. And we knew that the science out there suggested that we were probably likely to fall into the same traps that most organizations do when they hire, which is that we were going to get distracted by people's names. We were going to get distracted by where they went to university. And what we really wanted to be doing is identifying the best person for the job. So we decided to hack a system where we could focus on the things that really mattered. So a couple of the things that we did, we totally anonymized all of the applications that candidates had. 
We also chunked them up by different areas. So we made sure that we were focusing first on comparing candidates on one aspect of the job and then on the next aspect. And so we could account for things like the halo effect, which is that typically we allow an assessment of somebody in one area to bleed over into how we think of them in another area. So often what that means is if someone starts off their application well, then you tend to score them higher than you otherwise would because you're already sort of positively framed toward them. So we chunked things up and said, actually, let's do a comparison of candidates in different areas of their applications without knowing who's who. The third thing we did was we allowed multiple people to score without seeing each other's scores, and then we just averaged them. So we kind of leveraged the wisdom of the crowd. And finally, we were also randomizing the order that every candidate came to us. And the reason why we did that is some of your listeners might be aware of some interesting research on the fact that time of day or the order that a decision is taken in can have an impact on what decision you make. So there was this sort of famous study done of Israeli judges that found that they tended to be harsher in their sentencing just before lunch or just before the end of the day. And largely that was around the fact that, you know, some people hypothesized that they were a bit hungrier and therefore a bit crankier and making decisions which were more sort of risk averse. So one of the things we wanted to test was whether or not a candidate's answer was reviewed in the morning or in the middle of the day or at the end of the day before or after coffee seemed to have an impact. And we found in our research that it did. So the result of all of that was we decided to randomize when candidates appeared to us. So everyone got a sort of fair shot. So basically what we we ran is this massive experiment where we tested this new model of hiring up against the traditional resume or CV-based sifting process that we'd been using in the past. And we put real candidates through both processes simultaneously. We allowed them to be reviewed on their CVs by one team and then separately also reviewed on their answers to sort of more skill-based questions through this de-bias methodology. And then what we said was we'll bring through any excellent candidate from either of those two processes into assessment centres and then the best ones will go through to interviews and get the job. And we didn't tell anyone where any of these candidates came from. So we didn't say, you know, did Kyle get through because his CV was really highly rated or did he get through because actually his answers to these questions that we scored were really great. And what we actually discovered was that the scores we gave their CVs didn't predict how well they did in later stages of recruitment at all. In fact, there was no correlation between CV performance and and later stage of performance. But actually, these scores we were giving them were very predictive of their performance. What we also discovered is that the end of the process, over half the candidates that were hired wouldn't have been hired under traditional processes, which is to say that if Kyle got through because his applied scores were really great, it's possible that his CV was actually in the bin. He would have been someone we would definitely not have interviewed. And we found that of the candidates we were more likely to interview, they were also more diverse. So we were simultaneously more efficiently finding the people that were more skilled, but also diversifying the people that we were hiring. So that was a huge experiment we ran and we published about two years ago. And that's when we decided this was a product that did the things that we were aiming to achieve with it. And that's when we really opened it up to being used by companies all over the world. You know, I think that's a really great story and awesome technology. I can speak from personal experience. In my consulting days, I remember one of the candidates that came to us had an art history background. He's LGBT, obviously not someone that when you think about management consulting, he's like the default stereotype that someone has in their mind. He became the best consultant that we had hired. And if you let these, you know, biases around what makes a good applicant affect who a company hires, like you miss out on some really amazing talent. And so, you know, I I think that the technology you build around productizing that is really awesome to see. And 
Actually, for those that are not yet using a technology solution, how can managers begin combating bias in the hiring process? Yeah. So, I mean, the reason why we built technology is because we went out there and had a bit of a look at the things that organizations were currently doing to remove bias from their processes. And and typically what in the past organizations have done is they've invested in unconscious bias training. You know, we've probably all been through some form of diversity training. Unfortunately, the research suggests that while it does an okay job of raising awareness, and that is really important, don't get me wrong, there's not much of a correlation with the kind of going on one of these courses and and the decisions that you take three weeks later when you're presented with a batch of CVs. So it really seems clear from the research that you actually need to bake into the very processes that people use in their everyday lives, the kinds of defaults that you want to be easy. So if we don't want people paying attention to pictures and names because we think they're irrelevant, then why have we designed our hiring processes to make those things be the first things you see when you start to assess a candidate? It's inevitable that those things will find their way into your unconscious if if they're the very first things that you see. So we started focusing on technology because we see that as being the best way of scaling the kind of decisions and, and behavior change we really want we really help want to help organizations achieve. But having said all of that, actually a lot of the techniques are quite straightforward. And one of our board advisors, Iris Burnett, has recently written a book called What Works Gender Equality by Design, which really ta- is, is a fantastic book. It takes you through all the different ways in which behavioral science can be applied to everything from, you know, recruitment right through to promotions and selection throughout the whole organizational behavior life cycle. But some of the things she identifies is actually just down to structuring things. So one of the really big no-nos from a behavioral science standpoint for removal of bias is deciding what you care about after you've seen people. And if you think about a lot of hiring processes, you sort of think, well, I'll interview a batch of people and then I'll sort of figure out what it is that this role is really about once I've learned from who I've seen. And a lot of the research suggests that you'll typically in those instances end up choosing or deciding what you care about based on the person you got along with best. So kind of some really quick and easy things before you go out into a hiring process, just write down a couple of the skills you think that were really crucial. You know, ideally even write down how important each of those things are to you. Maybe you say like communication skills are paramount, but I also want to make sure that this person's great at a, at a bit of stakeholder management. And maybe they can also do some project management. Fine. So I'm going to weight the first one 50% and the next two 25. And then when you go into assessing candidates, make sure you, you assess candidates on skills in each of those different areas and ideally score them separately in each of those different areas. So rather than getting to the end of an interview and just giving your usual kind of, yeah, I like them or no, I didn't, maybe just write down how good were they in each of these three areas I decided to care about. And you might find that the sum of the scores you give in different areas is slightly different than your memory of the hour that you just spent with the candidate. So, you know, being a bit more structured about what it is that you're looking for before you meet candidates and then just writing down a little bit more detail about what you think their strengths and weaknesses are can go a long way toward removing bias from hiring processes, but also finding someone who's much more likely to be successful in the job. Well, I think that's a great tip that everyone can take away and start applying immediately to their own recruiting. And, you know, final question for you, in moving from more of a public policy sphere into being founder and CEO of a technology company, what have been your biggest lessons learned and advice for other founders? Yeah, well, I guess it's a rather unusual path to take from sort of public servant to technologist. But actually, I think there are some more similarities than than you originally would think. So working in government usually requires you to be pretty good at framework thinking and breaking down big 
sort of problems into component parts that you can test through assumptions. And working at the Treasury, I did a lot of that. And certainly that's a huge part of my job now. So for those of you who, who come from these sort of non-traditional technology backgrounds, sometimes the skills that you learn in one area are more translatable than you, than you might ordinarily think. The other thing that I guess I would say as advice for founders is, you know, like any job, you don't want to get up to do something that you're not deeply passionate about. So making sure that, you know, the thing that you're going to be dedicating your time to is something that you would want to be doing even if you weren't paid is, is I think, a pretty good proxy for something that's going to ride you through the days when it's tough and you're getting lots of no's and, you know, not all of the things are falling together in exactly the same way. So I guess two things there, one being, you know, Framework thinking has been hugely helpful for me. And the second is making sure that the kind of passion is is core and, and part and parcel of what we do, because I certainly think that's one of the motivators that, that really keeps you on track. Great advice. Well, thanks so much for joining the podcast, Kate. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. You can compare yourself to your peers by checking out our benchmarking data at benchmarks.openviewpartners.com. Check out the site and please participate in the 2018 benchmarking survey while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter, which is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do that by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.